Though the night deepens and tempests are wild, still I can trust him. I know he will keep me. He has redeemed me, and I am his child. Under his wings, under his wings, who from his love can sever. Under his wings, my soul shall abide, safely abide What a refuge in sorrow, how the heart yearningly turns to his rest. Often when earth has no balm for my healing, there I find comfort and there I am blessed. Under his wings, under his wings, who from his love can sever. Under his wings, my soul shall abide, safely abide forever, safely abide forever. Thank you, Luke, brother. Take your Bibles, please, if you will, and turn to Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. Ephesians chapter 6, please. Well, I know after the message tonight, there's a children's choir practice, children's choir practice. Uh, there's a choir practice for our new choir we're starting of the four and five-year-olds. And then there's a practice for our men's ensemble. Uh, Josh, we consider you a man, so we'll just say the men. I was going to say the men's ensemble plus Josh for youth night, but that doesn't sound right. So the men's ensemble, including the man of the hour, Joshua. And by the way, men, we will start off, and Carrie also, please, we will start off in the uh, cafeteria, then we'll come here to the auditorium. So all the men for practice starting in the cafeteria tonight. And then uh, the fours and fives are going to start in here. So you can do that for practice. And with, with that in mind, with all those practices, getting ready for children's night, youth night, and so forth, uh, I just left half of my notes right there on purpose, okay? So instead of covering two pieces of the armor tonight, we will just cover one. We covered one this morning, we'll cover one tonight. I figured if I brought them up here, I'd be tempted to keep on going, and then I'd regret that saying, you preached too long again. 
Now, if I preach overtime, then you'll think he must have added some things, all right? So if you will, please, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll take right off where we left this morning without going back and reviewing any of the notes, anything that was preached, just leading the verses that lead up to uh, the piece of the armor, second piece tonight, okay? Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. The message this morning was, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Make sure you have on the girdle or the belt of truth. And then we read these words, please. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. We want to look tonight at that second piece of the armor that God provides for us, that he tells us to put on, and that is the breastplate of righteousness. This is the part of the armor that covered uh, the soldier from the neck to the thighs. Once again, we, we hate to say that any part was more important than another part, but I think we'd all have to agree that the breastplate of righteousness is pretty important. The breastplate is pretty important for a soldier. Why? Because it covered his vital organs, of course, especially his heart. But if you uh, get stabbed or get shot someplace besides your heart, there's all kinds of places here that you can be gone in a real short amount of time. Would you agree? So these are the vital organs that we, they, they want to make sure that they had covered. This, um, this breastplate consisted usually of two parts. There was one covering for the front and another covering for the back. Uh, they say, I don't know, I wasn't there. They say that some of the breastplates only covered the front, that they didn't always have a breastplate on the back also. And some, some theologians like to really jump on that because they make a message out of that. And they say, yes, because God does not provide armor for our back. Why? He doesn't want us to turn our back on the enemy, especially to run, okay? So they say, yeah, that's only armor for the front. You don't need armor on the back because Christians are never supposed to run from Satan. Others say, no, it has nothing to do with that. Sometimes the armor was front and back. Sometimes there was just a breastplate on the front, not on the back side, okay? But the important thing was it covered uh, the soldier's vital organs uh, from the enemy. And listen, his arrows, his daggers, his swords, his spears, anything else he wanted to shoot over there at his enemies, okay? Now, we want to make sure tonight we understand, of course, this is the main thing in the message. What is this breastplate of righteousness? So let me start here, okay? This is not salvation righteousness. This is not salvation righteousness. This is what we might call sanctification righteousness. You say, what is the difference, okay? Before we were saved, we need to understand, before we're saved, we have no righteousness whatsoever, Amen? None. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And all the world stands guilty before God. That's a summary, really, of uh, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3. 
Well, who's a guilty sinner? Well, first of all, all the Gentiles would be guilty sinners, and the Jews would be guilty sinners. And so we have Gentiles and Jews. That pretty much takes care of everybody, and that's why we do have that verse in 23 for all, both Jews and Gentiles. Everyone who's not saved, obviously, is still a sinner, a lost sinner, and that that sinner has no righteousness. Uh, Go back to Isaiah, please, if you will, for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64, before salvation, we are unrighteous. We are totally depraved. We are lost in our sins. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as what together, please? Filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. All of our righteousness. Listen, the very best that a sinful man can come up with, God says it's, a, it's like it's a filthy rag. It's like the, the rags that were hanging outside of the cities of Jerusalem, the Jewish cities where the lepers would go and try to find some relief and they would, they would wipe their sores on these rags. And so we have a bunch of what we would call pussy rags. Just absolutely filthy, stinking, pussy rags. And God says that's about the best picture there is of the best we can come up with. And man tries to impress God. Again, Brian talked about this in Sunday school this morning. It's called works. All different religions have different works that people have to do to gain favor with God, to appease this this God. And, And so in some countries, it's some more like sophisticated things like maybe a giving to charity or joining a church, or getting baptized, or uh, treating the elderly nicely, or doing, doing uh, nice to just you know, make sure you do unto others as you want them to do to you, and kind of reform a few things in your life, and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, okay, that'll, that'll maybe, maybe sing in the choir, or uh, uh, you know, give some money to charity, or something. just do, you know, do something nice, treat your wife right, and you know, don't be too hard on the kids, et cetera, et cetera. And when, when, and when I die, God will take all of the good I've done, and he'll kind of balance it out with all the bad I've done, and surely I've done enough good that the scale's going to tip in my favor and into heaven I go. God says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why? Because the writer of Proverbs says, even the, the, the plowing of the wicked is sin. You say, Why would, how could plowing be sinful? Well, why are you plowing? Why are you working? Just to have more of this and more of that and more of that? Live high off the hog, make all kinds of money? Is there anything about God in this thing? Is there anything about other people in this thing? So we have this selfish pride thing that says, I'll do whatever I can to get ahead and make a million here and so forth. God says, hey, listen, even your work can be a sin. Before righteousness, all of our right, before salvation rather, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Then at the moment of salvation, you know this, this is so basic, at the very second of salvation, God imputes to us, he reckons to us righteousness. What righteousness? The very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look quickly, please, at three passages. I think the best passage is Romans chapter 10. Would you go to Romans chapter 10, please? Romans chapter 10. At the very moment of salvation, man receives the righteousness of Christ. He needs that because he has none of his own. 
And you can combine that first point with the second point here, and you'll see why I've chosen Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. What does that tell us about the people he's praying for? It tells us that they were lost. These religious Jews, they're lost. They need to be saved. Paul says, what's the problem? For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. But it's not according to knowledge. So it's basically a false zeal. It's an empty zeal. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, zealous religious people today. When you study the religions of the world, in fact, some of the things that they have to do would make it like nothing for Christians. I mean, it's like, whoa, where'd they come up with all that? Yeah, they're really zealous. They're really zealous. And Paul said, that's the problem with the Jews. They have a zeal of God, but it's not according to knowledge. Well, what was the problem with that? What was this false zeal? Verse 3, look at, watch the word righteousness now. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, the righteousness that God provides, and going about to establish their own righteousness, righteousness of man. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They're trying to, trying to get, establish their own righteousness, which they can never do. They never can measure up. Never could do enough, pay enough, join enough, give enough, whatever. But they have rejected, they've not submitted to, they've not yielded to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. How do you figure that? For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. So when it's about Moses, it's all about the law, and the key word is doing. And God says you can't do enough. The law simply shows you you need to be saved. On the other hand, verse 6, but the righteousness which is of faith, Verse 4, remember, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth, but the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. I've preached on this often in message. I've mentioned this many times in messages. So, so why don't we send someone up to heaven and get, get Jesus the Christ and he can come down here and fix this thing. No, he's already been here. He's already come down. God in human flesh, the incarnation, he's already been. Well, let's, let's send down to the abyss and bring him up from the abyss. No, he's already risen from the dead. He's already come up from the dead. So you don't have to ascend to heaven to try to get him and do something. You don't have to uh, descend to the deep to get him and do something. He's already come. He's already done it. And that leads to verses 9 and 10, with 8 and 9 and 10. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth, you don't have to go to heaven, don't have to go to the abyss. It's, the word is nigh thee, the word of faith is nigh thee. It's in thy mouth, it's in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Well, what is the word of faith that's preached? The word that brings a person righteousness, the righteousness found in Christ. That if thou shalt, quote him with me please, 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart man believeth unto, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. Did you get that? For with a heart man believeth. There's that word faith. It's not about Moses. It's not about the law. It's not about doing. It's all about Christ. It's about his righteousness. And it's all about believing, trust, faith. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, 
that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Romans 10, 13, later on in the chapter, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he says, for with a heart man believeth unto righteousness. So before salvation, no righteousness. At the moment of salvation, the righteousness of Christ. Uh, two verses, in fact, that we looked at in Sunday school this morning. I tell you, you'd think Brother Brian and I got together during the week and correlated our teaching and preaching. Have, amen? I mean, it's just like week after week. But he chose those two, these two verses this morning. I thought, well, brother, you're going to get these again tonight. In fact, it's the main verse this morning when you go to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, because that's a key verse about the fact that God gives us his righteousness the moment we trust his son. Romans 5, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. Jesus, who knew no sin. Why did that happen? For God made his son, Jesus, to become literally sin for us. The one who knew no sin. Why? That we Sinners might be made the, together please, righteousness of God in him. Isn't that wonderful? The sinless one became sin so sinners could have their sins forgiven and be righteous. Would you go please to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 7 eight, and nine. In the verses prior to that, Paul says salvation is not by works, it's by grace. If salvation was by works, he said, I'd have it. And he gives a list of all of his credentials. I was this, I was this, I was this, I did this, I was this, I would this. I mean, surely I would make it. But he says, I found out I was all wrong. And he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I called all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Now look at verse 9, And be found in him. That's the key, in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, or literally faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God, how? By faith. That's for believers. Now, once we are saved, once we become righteous, declared righteous by God, and that's what just, by the way, the word justification and righteousness in the Greek is the same, it's the same Greek word. Righteousness and justification, same word, okay? But once we are declared righteous by God, we're justified. For the first time in our life, we can and we should live righteously. So as a sinner, we have no righteousness of our own, but we get the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to our account, reckoned to us the moment we're saved, and now that we are saved and we're righteous in Jesus Christ, now God says, for the first time, you can and you should Live righteously. Righteously. Live righteously. 
And this really is the breastplate of righteousness that God speaks of here. It's righteous living. He says, and put on the breastplate of righteousness, righteous living. So the righteousness mentioned here is the armor. Dr. Schofield, in the Schofield Reference Bible, defines or explains this righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness that is spoken. He says this, the righteous life, which is the result of salvation through Christ. That is simple and that is good. This is the righteous life, which is the result of salvation through Christ. I quoted Dr. John MacArthur this morning. Let me quote him again tonight. This is what he says. This is outstanding. He says, The breastplate of righteousness that we are to put on as spiritual armor against our adversary is the practical righteousness of a life lived in obedience to God's word. Did you get that? That's what this breastplate of righteousness is. It is the practical or practicing practical righteousness of a life lived in obedience to God's word. To put on the breastplate of righteousness is to live daily, moment by moment, obedience to our Heavenly Father. I want to read that again. To put on the breastplate of righteousness is to live daily, moment by moment, obedience to our Heavenly Father. This part of our armor is holy living, for which God supplies the standard and the power, but for which we must supply the, would you like to guess the word? Willingness. Just like we said this morning, it's not just all about the sovereignty of God. It's all about the free will of man. God provides the breastplate of righteousness. He now enables us to live righteously because we are righteous. He supplies the standard so we know what our target is. We know how we should live. And basically, that's the word of God. That's the, the written standard, the written target. And we have the living standard, the living target. That's the person of Christ, living Christ. That God supplies both the, the standard and he supplies also the power. But notice, please, but we must supply the willingness. We can decide do we want to live righteously or not. God himself puts on our imputed righteousness, he says, but we must put on our practical righteousness. I like this. This is how he finishes that sentence or this paragraph. Imputed righteousness protects us from hell. Would you say amen to that? Imputed righteousness protects us from hell, but it doesn't protect us from Satan's attacks in this present world. Now, you just think about that. The righteousness of Christ that we do not have in ourselves but is given to us at salvation. That is all the protection we need from hell. But having the righteousness of Christ being saved, that doesn't protect us from Satan's attack. Satan hates Christians. I added, I don't need to add to what he says, but as a summary I put, God doesn't tell us to put on something we're already clothed with, all right? We're already clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We have that at salvation. So when God says, now put on the whole armor of God, you got to put it on. He's not going to tell us to put on something that we're already clothed with. So we who have already righteousness, now God says, live it. Live righteously. Could we look at a few verses? Would you go with me to the book of 1 John? What is this practical righteousness? What is the sanctifying righteousness? What is this living righteously that's supposed to characterize our lives and really is a part of the armor that God provides? 1 John, please, chapter 2. Would you look at verse 29? 1 John, chapter 2, verse 29. 
If you know that he is righteous, God Almighty, God the Father, and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know, and you should, that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is what? He's born of him. You see this all through the book of 1 John. One of the birthmarks, one of the traits of a true, genuine Christian is he lives righteously. Now listen, we may not live righteously all the time, but we should. We may not always live righteously, free from sin, but we should. What does it say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1? My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. Don't sin. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one. So we may not live righteously all the time, but we should. And God expects us to, and it is a part of the armor that we're supposed to put on. And so a birthmark of the true believer is that his life is characterized by living righteously. Another verse in 1 John, go to chapter 3, right across the page in my Bible. Verse 7, little children, let no man deceive you. Do not be fooled, do not be tricked. Let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. That is a birthmark. That is a characteristic of every true believer. He does righteousness. And listen, we never can question somebody's salvation and always know that we're right. But Jesus did say, by their fruits you finish it. By their fruits you shall know them. Apple trees grow on apple trees, not orange trees. And orange trees don't go on grapevines, okay? So if you pick up an apple, you say, guess what? This must be an apple tree. Pick up an orange, I think this is an orange tree. Pick up a grapefruit, say, this must be grapefruit. You know, it's just like, that's the way it is. And it's a shame that there are so many professed Christians in the world, we don't know what they are. I think of this so often, and I don't know how you could have a pastor's heart and not think about this, especially when you've been in the same place for a lot of years and you've, and you've had a lot of people to minister to. It, it scares me to think that some people who have professed to be saved, as long as I've ever known them, I've never seen a trait of a Christian. It's just not there, and you're thinking, surely... Surely, I, I surely hope he's saved. I really believe, I mean, I really hope that she's really a Christian, but what reason do I have to believe that? Because, you know, I've known this person for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And then my next thought is, when they come to die, will they have assurance that they're saved? When for their whole life they've said they're saved, but nobody would ever know it. When you read the book of 1 John, you can say everyone has a right to question the salvation of someone who day after week, after month, after year, after year, after decade lives not righteously. There's no righteousness there. So God says, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. He is righteous even he, as he is righteous. Would you go please to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I think this verse is a great summary or help, a definition of what this breastplate of righteousness really is. Philippians chapter 1. 
Verse 8, Paul says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you on the bowels of Jesus Christ. This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. He said, I'm praying, verse 11, that you might be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Key phrase. I'm praying. He's writing to Christians. Remember, verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the, next word, saints, the holy ones, believers in Christ Jesus, along with the, those that are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. He's writing to believers. We know that. And he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you who are righteous. What am I praying for? I'm praying, amongst other things, that you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness. This is godly living. This is holy living. This is obviously righteous living. Titus chapter 2. You want to go quickly to Titus chapter 2, please? Verse 11. Verse 12, rather. Titus chapter 2. Beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we believers should live soberly, we should live righteously, we should live godly when? In this present world. Where? Right now in this present world. We who are Christians... The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us believers that denying ungodliness, denying worldly lust, we Christians, we who are saved, we who are already righteous, we are already in the family of God, children of God, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And then would you go back, please, our last verse tonight, would you go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Let's see what this passage has to say about righteous living. Living righteously before salvation or living righteously after salvation. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Wherefore, or therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also, Christians, should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old nature, our old man, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead or has died is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe also that we shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Let's stop from what is he saying. Listen, if, if we are saved, we are literally, spiritually, we are in Christ. So that when he died, in him, we died. When he rose again, in him, we rose again. 
We died to sin with him, and we rose to walk in newness of life with him. And God says, listen now, you need to reckon, you need to know that this is true. You reckon this to be true for yourself. That's where you start. Listen, I'm in Christ. He died to sin. I died to sin. He rose again and conquered sin. I rose in him. In other words, I don't have to sin anymore. I have a choice. I can say no to sin. You say, well, then what's my responsibility? What else? Verse 11. Likewise, I already mentioned this. Reckon you yourselves also to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign. Do not let sin reign. Get on the throne and reign in your mortal body that you should obey the lust thereof. Now look at verse 13. Neither yield ye your members. What are members? The members of our body, all the different parts of our body. Do not surrender. Do not submit. Do not yield the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Key phrase. Do not yield your members as instruments, tools of unrighteousness unto sin. But in fact, instead, yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. And watch this now, and yield your members, all the parts of your bodies, as instruments or tools of what, you tell me? Righteousness unto whom? Unto God. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, Christian. For you're not under the law, you're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid, away with the thought, perish the thought. May such a thought never cross our minds. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked. You were before you were saved. You were the servants of sin. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Now look at verse 18. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded, before you were saved, as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, watch it now, yield your members, surrender your members, servants to righteousness unto, next word please, Holiness. What's God talking about? Live righteously. Before you were saved, you didn't live righteously. Before you were saved, you, you lived in rebellion and disobedience. You couldn't be righteous if you tried. But now you're a Christian. You're saved. You've been born again. You've got the righteousness of Christ. So now you have a choice. You can live righteously or you can choose to live unrighteously. It's your choice. And when you wrap this all up, I like to look at it this way. Again, this is practical righteousness that results from being having positional righteousness. We can define, therefore, this, this breastplate of righteousness, this righteous living. We can define this as correct, upright, honorable, godly, holy behavior. And here's the key. Any unrighteous deed in my life opens me up to more satanic attacks and spiritual defeats. So why do you say that? 
Because every time we as Christians are attacked and tempted by Satan at any time to do anything that's wrong, anything, we have a choice. I, didn't, I wasn't righteous before I was saved, but I'm in Christ. I'm righteous now. I have his righteousness, and I'm supposed to yield myself as a servant now of righteousness and live holy. So guess what? Will I do this? Will I, will I sin? Will I yield to this temptation? When I say yes, I will do something unrighteous. What I'm doing is opening myself up to begin a pattern of unrighteous living. And I think there's a lot of Christians that live in this world. They get tempted to do the wrong. And instead of having the breastplate of righteousness on, this breastplate of holy living, they say, I don't really need that right now. And we yield to Satan and we do something wrong. We commit an unrighteous deed. Why should we be surprised if the next time you get the same temptation or another temptation, you say yes again. And the next time you're tempted, you say yes again. And it's not long, and it's like you live like an unsaved person. It's like sin after sin after sin, day after day after day. And the sad thing is the average Christian has no idea that this is what's happened to him. He just let his guard down. He just got lazy spiritually. For whatever reason, he says, well, you know, I know other people that are doing this and it doesn't seem to be hurting them. Or I, I, I just don't think this is a big deal. I hear this all the time. It's not going to hurt me just to do this one time, okay? And then there's two times. And there's three times. Then there's a pattern of living. Now, if you turn that around, and you know this is true. If you're honest, you know this is true. When you are tempted in any given area of life and you, by the grace of God, you say, no, I will not do that. I have a choice. And I'm choosing to do right. I'm choosing to yield myself to God's Holy Spirit who is prompting me to follow his word in gratitude of my Savior for all that he's done for me. Oh, does this sound appealing? Does this sound like fun? Do I think this could hurt me? That's not the issue. Everybody doing it doesn't matter. I know what's right by the word of God. And I am righteous in Jesus Christ. He is my righteousness. I died when he died. I rose again when he rose again. And I can say no to unrighteousness. The answer is not interesting. Not going there. Not doing that. The answer is no. Why would it shock us if the next time we had the same temptation or something very similar, we said again, no. No, I said no to that yesterday. I said no to that last week. The answer is still no. And the next week, it's still no. And you know, you, you start looking back and you say, I give all glory to the Lord, but by God's grace, he has helped me to live a victorious Christian life. I have, by the grace of God and by the power of God's spirit, I have, I have endeavored to resist Satan. And guess what? He, he has fled from me. By the way, it'll be temporary because he will be back, right? He'll be back. But it's the breastplate of righteousness. And be, because every unconfessed sin in our life, no matter how seemingly small it is, 
it makes us vulnerable to more attacks. And then the sad thing is, and I close with this tonight, if we're not careful, somebody says, well, listen, it's not law, Pastor. I'm under grace. I'm under the grace of God. We just read in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? God forbid. So don't be thinking now, you know, it's really not the big. It doesn't really matter because I'm under grace. This is the age of grace. And somebody else says, hey, listen, it's not only the age of grace, but I'm so thankful. Now listen carefully. I'm so thankful that when God saved me, he forgave all of my sins, past, present, and future. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe it's true that the moment you were saved, God not only forgave your past sins, but he forgave all your present sins and all your future sins? Is that true or false? That is true. That's a wonderful doctrine. Until you take it and say, oh, if God's already forgiven me, past, present, and future, then what's the big deal if I sin tonight? It's already been forgiven. That's a terrible, would you agree? That's a terrible way to think. I'm afraid that that's how some Christians live. I've been saved by the grace of God. The moment I was saved, God so graciously forgave all of my sins, past, present, and future. So what is the big deal if I just do this tonight? It's not going to matter. It's already forgiven. God says, you better put on the breastplate of righteous living and not be thinking like that. Bow your heads, please, if you will. So where are you tonight in this? Are you righteous? Are you saved? Have you been born again? Your sins forgiven? Adopted in the family of God? A Christian. A Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's start there. Is that you tonight? Do you have Christ's righteousness I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but if I ask that question and you did raise your hand, say, yes, that's me. I'm saved. I am righteous in Jesus Christ. And I'd say, okay. Let's go to the second question. Are you living righteously? Are you living righteously, godly, holy, like you can, like you should? If not, why not? In what area or areas do you not think it matters? God says, listen, this is a war going on. It's a spiritual war in the life of every Christian. And I'm providing an armor for you so you can be victorious. But you better take the armor and put it all on. One of those pieces, so important, make sure you put on the breastplate of righteous living because you're going to need it. We thank you for your word tonight. Help us to understand what you said from these many verses we've looked at this evening and help us to leave this place tonight with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving that in Christ we are righteous. Help us be so thankful for that, that with a 
with a heart of gratitude to you, we cry out and pray, Oh, Father, help me to live righteously as I am righteous. I yield myself to you. Help me to have on this breastplate of righteous living that I might be standing when the battle's over. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please together? Our pianist plays a verse of a song this evening. Why don't you pray about what you've heard? And there's no point praying if you're not serious about it. I mean, really sincere about it. Like we preached this morning, no hypocrisy, no sham. Just the real, real deal, okay? It'd be better for you just stand there and not even pray than to just utter some words you don't really believe. You just want to do something during the invitation. No, don't do that. But I pray that you will pray to the Lord. Confess what's wrong. Ask for his help in whatever area you need it. That's what the invitation tonight is all about. Let's do that while Amanda plays. Brother Rick, if you will, please close our service tonight in prayer, if you will.